Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Broadway and television producer Richie Jackson is an out loud and proud gay married man. And when his teenage son came out to him, he was thrilled. But when his son said, Daddy, being gay is no big deal, Richie knew he had to act. His new book, Gay Like Me, A Father Writes to His Son, is Richie's response. Being gay is a gift, he says, but it also demands knowledge of your history and how you fit in in America. Our conversation runs the gamut, including the historic candidacy of Pete Buttigieg. Some are actually asking if Mayor Pete is gay enough. Hear what Richie has to say about that right now. Richie Jackson, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So your book, Gay Like Me, A Father Writes to His Son, I've read it. Full disclosure, I wrote a blurb for it because I thought it was beautiful and powerful. But for those who haven't read it yet, talk about what inspired you to write this book. Well, thank you for your beautiful blurb and uh, for having me. I wrote the uh, book because my husband and I have two children. And when our older son was 15, he told us he was gay. And I was elated. I had wanted him to be gay. I had hoped he'd be gay. Why? It, it was, well, being gay is a gift. It is the best part about me. It's the most important part about me. It's been the blessing of my life. I wanted that blessing for him. And also, you can't parent if every day you pray your child is nothing like you. Hmm. I, I would have no self-esteem as a parent if I did that. But when our son told us he was gay, he said, Daddy, being gay is not a big deal. My generation doesn't think being gay is a big deal. And I said, oh, no, being gay is a really big deal. And I started to think of all the things I had to share with him about what it means to be a gay man. I didn't want him to grow up to be one of these people who diminishes it, demeans it by saying gay is just a part of me. I just happen to be gay. If he did that, he would break his own heart and diminish the gift that it is. And then in 2016, Donald Trump was elected and brought with him to Washington, Mike Pence, and they've declared war on the LGBTQ community. They are more of an imminent threat to our son than ISIS and North Korea. Now I had to warn him what it takes to be a gay man in America. And that was the impetus for the book. You write in the book uh, to your son, you're an American. You do all the things Americans do. You even have the dream. But America doesn't want you, doesn't accept you, is systematically attempting to erase you. Schools don't teach about you. Laws don't fully protect you. The America you think you are a part of is a mirage. You must every day keep a certain clarity about yourself, yet remain keenly aware of America's vision of you. I mean, when you started answering my first question, being gay is a gift. But this gift, given what you, what I've just read and what you've written to your son, it's a gift that is like heavy baggage. It's harrowing to be gay, and it's really hard to be gay. But think about it. Our adversaries are not trying to diminish us because we are worthless, because we're a defect. They know that our being gay makes us powerful. Think about what marvels LGBTQ people are. We disappoint our parents. We are at battle with our government. 
We are stigmatized by religions. We are bullied in our childhoods. We're erased in our classrooms. We've survived a plague. And still we rise, come out, and say, this is me. That is the spirit of an extraordinary species of people. You write, um, also, my coming out wasn't only a culmination of an exploration and an evolution of identity. It was a political act. Right. That is opposite of what of what your son Jackson was thinking. It's just a part of me. I it's know. not a big deal. But for you, when you came out, it was a political act. And why? Right. So I came out in uh, 1983, right at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And our coming out was political. We had to stand up and show in numbers how many gay people there they were so that we would force the government to fight AIDS. Being gay and being political has always been intrinsically linked for me because my first political act as a gay person, my first act as a gay person was going to a rally to demand uh, the government fight AIDS. And it, I, you didn't go where I thought you were going to go because I thought your well, first I'll redo political my answer. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I thought your first political act, uh, other than coming out, was going to a pride parade. And you have very strong opinions about what pride has become. Exactly. Well, you know, if you if my first political act was going to pride, it would not have been a parade because back in 1983 we were marching. We were not having a parade. They were angry marches. They were there were more fists than flags. We were activists who were uh, demanding attention, demanding rights that we didn't have, demanding representation. There were no out politicians. There were no out movie stars. There were very few laws protecting us. So back then, Pride was uh, a, a rally, a march. Now all the rainbows and the hashtag love is love and the parades have all lulled us into this complacency, into this false idea that things are better. And corporate sponsorship. You, you, you write, pride was a rebellion, not a logo. Right. Banded together, not branded. Yes. So we didn't have any corporations. And I recognized that back then we would have craved the corporate attention. Oh, yeah. And uh, just somebody to say, we see you and we support you. But right now what these corporations are doing is they're slapping rainbows on their uh, store windows. They're putting floats in our parade, but they are also, when we're not watching, supporting local politicians with, who are anti-LGBT because it uh, is in the best interest of their business. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're pinkwashing us. So corporations are a complicated thing for us in our, in our uh, pride rallies. In our pride rallies, but given what you just said, you know, there are corporations that step up and and go to bat for yes, us they when are more powerful than our government. When now. when state legislatures do so-called bathroom bills, Tim right. Cook, probably the most powerful CEO of a gigantic corporation, put his personal clout on the and he he is gay. Right. Um put his clout on the line. Right. Does that No, I think that's extraordinary. Or you could look recently at the Tennessee bills where all the companies said this is bad for business. They still got signed into law, and the only company that did not sign that letter uh, denouncing these laws is FedEx. Mm -hmm. Well, that says a lot. Yes. Um, you 
what I find fascinating is, and we are of the same the same generation, right. and you know, you have this son who is didn't really have to be in the closet. You right, you were never in a closet. You didn't start start your gay life with that prison of secrecy. On in a weird way, was the closet or is the closet um, a sort of beneficent incubator? Yeah, it's interesting um, to sit there, sit in the closet, and be able to discover yourself and and have a sense of what you're facing outside. You know, one of the things I think a lot about is these young kids, and I celebrate them coming out so young. But are they ready for what's going to come at them once they are out? And um, you know, the the I wouldn't know how to be our son to live in a world where uh, he didn't. I I didn't start my life uh, hiding. I didn't start my life with secrets. And I think so many of us um, who do that, that becomes a modus operandi for our, the rest of our life. You can't compartmentalize secrets. So if you start your life in a prison and full of secrets and hiding, that's going to seep out to other parts of your life. And my son doesn't have that, and I'm grateful for it. You're grateful for it, but on the other hand, you're, it makes you super fearful right. for he, him. He has no idea what it takes to be an on-alert gay man in America. You know, I one of the things that made me nervous and why I wrote the book is he has no gay guard. And... Me, LGBTQ people our age know that you never let down your guard. You always know who's around you, what you're saying, who can hear you, when it's safe to hold your husband's hand, when it's not safe to kiss the person you love goodbye. You know uh, what street to walk down to get to work because it's safe. You know what states to live in uh, uh, that are hospitable to starting a family or where you could be fired for being gay. There are all these things that take daily vigilance. And if you don't have a gay guard, you're at risk. And our son didn't didn't have that when he was leaving college. And leaving for, leaving college. for college. And yet, as you write in the book, um, and I want you to talk about about this. I'm just going to read this one this one sentence, and then you run with it. This you, is very gotcha. It, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> with your own words. So many pressure. <laughs> you said this, right? No, but you write just a few months old, and you were already confronted with yes. gay prejudice. Right. So uh, our son was three months premature. He was an identical twin, and they were. Uh, they had twin to twin transfusion syndrome. They were born three months early, and our firstborn son died. And Jackson was uh, in intensive care for three months. And when he was eight days old and two pounds, he had surgery. And over the course of the time that he was in the hospital, he needed a blood transfusion. But because we are gay men, uh, both me and my partner at the time, B.D. Wong, who I, who uh, Jackson, who I had Jackson with, we were not allowed to donate blood. We were his parents. We had pledged to take care of him and to, you know, protect him. And we were being told eight days into parenting that we could not do that. And that law still, uh, that regulation from the FDA still stands. Gay men cannot donate blood unless they're celibate for 12 months. The, the uh, discriminatory uh, 
regulation is still in place. So when we go to our, you know, when the school PTA says we're doing a blood drive, my husband and I have to say we're not allowed to participate. In fact, you you say in in the book that um, in order to do in order to have Jackson and his right. identical twin, you had to have HIV tests. Yeah. You were HIV negative. I know the you doctors were... and nurses all knew we were HIV negative because in order to do surrogacy, you have to have been tested for HIV. There was no other reason that we could not donate our blood other than discrimination. And, and the and, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, and so discrimination in terms of giving your own son blood for the transfusion right. that he needed and you write you seethed you seethed right. when you watched the the, I, I, the blood I, go through I was through. sitting by his incubator he was 2 pounds and that and was, it, he could not breathe on his own and blood from some other human being that we did not know was being uh, put into his veins and I was seething and I was uh, so angry that here are baby was and we were not allowed to take care of him the way he needed to be taken care of and so you couldn't give blood because of discriminatory laws this was in new york state well it was not in new york state oh. that's the other discriminant he paid surrogacy in 2000 was not uh legal in new york state it remains not legal in new york state it is an abomination and we had to leave new york so that our baby could be born in california so here we were, we left the best medical care in the world and left our family to go to a different state, to go to Modesto uh, in California to have our baby where we knew nobody, where the, the hospital didn't have the level four or the NICU level that could take care of him. We had to airlift him out of there to save him. But New York wouldn't let us uh, give birth there and still don't. And you write that there's one judge at the time. Back there was in, right. one judge. There was one judge in California back in 2000 who would put uh, the names of same-sex couples on the birth certificate. And what you would do is you would get a pre-birth judgment. You'd go to this one judge, and he would um, basically make a decree that you were the parents. Uh, and the only two names that were on the birth certificate were... Uh, me and BD. And that was hard to believe 20 years ago. Yeah. Which seems like yesterday. I know. And yet, as you just said in your answer, those laws are still on the books. Right. So you have, All of them. Right. So we just went to Virginia a few years ago, uh, my husband Jordan Roth and I, to have uh, a baby. And same thing. We went to Virginia because they're hospitable to sur paid surrogacy and because they have the administrative rules that allow us to be on the birth certificate. I will tell you, though, um, we had our baby in 2016, and after the election, our lawyer called us and said, you have to have a second parent adoption. I don't trust uh, this administration. And uh, yes, your names are on the birth certificate, but just to ensure your parenthood, you should uh, get a second parent adoption. I mean, you were already like the rest of us in the gay community freaked out that the man exactly. had been elected. Exactly. But now here right. you have your own lawyer calling you and saying, just in case. Just in case. So you should have a social worker from the state come into your home and 
and give the judgment that you are a suitable parent for your own baby. And I said, I'm not doing that. Uh, I, I didn't do it. And uh, it's not uh, recommended. And I certainly would recommend everybody get a second parent adoption. But I will not let this government tell me a, a suitable parent for my baby. So you mentioned your husband, Jordan Roth. Yes. And, and you write so sweetly about how the relationship came together. Um, how did you meet? So it's the gayest story ever. <laughs> so it happened over brunch. <laughs> Even gayer than that, what? believe it or not. We met at the Tony Awards. Okay, That's you win. Gay. And uh, I was uh, Harvey Firestein's guest the year that he was up for Best Actor in a Musical for Hairspray. And just uh, the week before, uh, somebody I knew had met with Jordan. So during a commercial break, I went up to Jordan and introduced myself. I mentioned this colleague we had in common, and we started to talk. And, I, and just like every show business uh, conversation ends with, we should have lunch. And then I went back to my seat and stared at him the entire night. <laughs> and I called him the next day and asked him to have lunch. And, and did we, he, wait, one – did he answer the phone? So, <laughs> how, how many days did you wait? I, I he said the very no, next no, day. Do how? not wait. I don't play games. And so, so how long? I called him the next day. We made a plan for lunch. And I think the next week we had lunch, but it was pouring rain the day we were supposed to have lunch. He was uptown in New York City and I was downtown. And I called him and said, where should we meet for lunch? And he said, I don't go out in the rain. So if you want to still do this, you have to come to me. And I, I actually, now that I look at it, he really like set the tone for the way this relationship was going to be. I jumped right on that subway. Well, I mean, and um, if you have not seen uh, uh, Richie's husband, Jordan, you will understand wh why that is so funny that he would not come out in, into the rain. <laughs> and so... You have this date, or you had several. We had several, um, not what not I days. thought were dates. And, you know, I had been in a previous relationship for 15 years. Jordan was the very first person I started a date when I was single. And I kept saying, these feel like dates to me. We're going to dinner and a movie. That was dates when I was yeah, younger. And I could tell he didn't think they were dates. And uh, I just thought, oh, does he think we're becoming friends? Who needs more friends? <laughs> and, uh, one night I just said to him, we should date. And he should. He said, mm, it's complicated. And all I said was, it's worth it. And he said, it's complicated. And I knew what he meant. I'm 10 years older. I had, a, at that time, three-year-old baby. And I was fresh out of a very long-term relationship. And all I said back to him is, it's worth it. And he said, complicated. And back and forth, back and forth. And finally, he said, well, just tell me how this works. We go out. I fall in love with your son. He falls in love with you. I mean, with me. Then we break up. Then what? And I said, why are you thinking of getting out before you get in? And he didn't have an answer to that. So we very slowly uh, dated after that. And that was 17 years ago. 17 years yes. ago. And you got married? Got married in 2012. So eight years ago. Um, no, you uh, have had your eighth anniversary. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it will. No, no, it will be this yeah, year. It will be eight in June. I mean, in September. Um, is it, I'm sorry. I I paused one because, you know, I know both of you, adore both of you, <laughs> and 
the what people can't see is with every answer that you've given, the emotions are right there on the surface, whether you're talking about Jackson, whether you're talking about um, uh, Richie, uh, you're, sorry, I was kidding you guys, <laughs> whether you're talking about Jordan, whether you're talking about little Levi, who's the cutest thing in the world. Um, when you and I talked about, you had already written the book. You were petrified, I was, I petrified about how this book would be received and how open you are about a lot of things <laughs> in this book. And again, you're writing to your son and you're writing to your son about how how to be a gay man, including sex tips. Yeah, sex tips, yeah. Well, sex, how not to have sex, I think, <laughs> more than. Uh, you know, I was petrified when we talked before it was out and I was, um, because my in, my entire heart is in, on these pages and uh, you know, I felt very vulnerable and very exposed. But I thought I had to write it this way because if it was an academic book, it wouldn't be meaningless to Jackson. And by taking that narrow lane of writing him a letter, I couldn't smooth out the edges. I couldn't soften anything. I had to be uh, honest and truthful so that it would actually be worth something. And I would say to every parent, you should write your child a letter before they set off. You don't have to show it to people like I did, but I've, I've said everything I need to say to him. I am at peace that he's going out into the world, and I know that I've left nothing unsaid. Um, you told him about, or all of us really, yes. about, about painful things when you were around his age and trying to get out there and find yourself and know yourself in situations that you you got yourself into with, um, I don't want to say older gentlemen, but people in like professors and and things well, that were I not. Wish they were professors. <laughs> they were high school teachers. <laughs> oh, that's um, right. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, um, we're not taught about ourselves in school. So here I. Less than 7% of LGBTQ people get inclusive sex ed. Back when we were growing up, nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, now it's only next to nothing. So when I got to NYU, I had no idea how to have sex with another person. I didn't know what a tightrope it was. I didn't understand that you had to try to be vulnerable with somebody while also protecting yourself from their own taking on their baggage. So the first per the first man I had sex with broke up with me right after we had sex. We hadn't sat up in the bed, and he said to me, "This is wrong. We should not be doing this." And he broke up with me. The second person I had sex with in college said to me, uh, "I'm straight," and then leaned in and kissed me, and we had this feverish uh, affair. And then he broke up with me because he said he was straight, and I was so young I had no idea that his self-loathing wasn't personal. I took it on and I didn't realize I couldn't soothe all the terror he had for the feelings he was having. The third person, after we had intercourse, punched me and screamed at me, how could you do that? He was so angry at having enjoyed sex with a man. So those were my bruising first three experiences and I have not recovered from that. I have always had difficulty 
letting myself be intimate because I was so hurt. And what I wrote in the book and what I said to our son was, you're not going to know when you come in contact with a young man in college that you're going to hook up with. You're not going to know where in the journey they are. They could be in the closet. They could have been bullied. They could have been abused. They could be self-loathing. So you have to take care with them. You have to be good to them. Because I didn't know that when I was younger. And so you you put all of these feelings on the page. And so now I have to walk through and, and, and learn from you the reactions. So first, the reaction of Jackson. This is written to him. And you've shown it to I've him. I've shown What's it to his... him, but he started college when I gave it to him. And he was I gave him my book, and his professor gave him Socrates and Ec- Aeschylus. <laughs> so guess what he chose to read first? <laughs> Socrates. Yes. So uh, I haven't gotten his reaction yet. We've wait, spoke... wait, wait. He I... has not read the whole book yet. We've he... spoken uh, a lot about the ideas in the book. And, you know, one of the things we always did while he was growing up was have dinner as a family right. as oh, every night. So these, uh, some of it I spoke as I was writing it, but there are things in it uh, he hasn't read yet. I was much more worried about my parents reading it than I was him. And, and so I was, I was going, you write, I, if I remember correctly, because I I read this back in September. Yes. I feel so <laughs> ahead of the curve. But if I remember correctly, your father initially did not react well. He was not. Uh, my to mother, your coming out. Right. My mother uh, was amazing. And uh, she told my father I was gay after I told her. And he said all the stereotypical wrong things. He's gay men are lonely and sad. Uh, why did you choose this? It's just a phase. And I was so off kilter because I had never had any uh, problems with my parents growing up. I was a very good uh, kid. And I loved them, and we were very close. And this just put me off kilter. And when your father read the book, he had no idea, if I remember right. He had no idea you felt this way. uh, There's a lot of things about my relationship with, uh, or my feelings about my dad as a father that would be new to him when he read in the book. Uh, I've said it to therapists, (laughs) but nobody else. And... um, but this is a book from a father to son, and I think it was important to put my my relationship with my father to me so I could inform my relationship mm-hmm. to our son. Uh, I was so worried, and I forgot that my parents are of this World War II generation where they're not going to share their feelings. So he didn't say very much to me. Um, my mother read the part about him out loud to him and he said i guess he's right and that was his reaction and i you know to me that was extraordinary uh and then now he is so proud of the book he constantly is texting me about the design of it he loves it so he hasn't quizzed me about anything or asked any questions about the contents he's concentrating on how beautiful it looks how proud he is and he make he I went to a book event last night and he texted me to make sure I had uh, Purell because, you know, he wants to make sure I'm not going to get sick. So that, you know, <laughs> I'm dead. not going to get much more detail than that. Now, your mother, uh, basically, she was in on it from the the get-go. And you write that she took you to Torch, Torch Song, Song. Trilogy. She took you to Torch Song Trilogy. When and I was you, 17. And you write that you thought that 
was this my mom's way of telling me it's okay? Yeah. It's okay. She took me. She had seen it first, and it was Torchung Trilogy is the very first Broadway comedy about a gay man, and it was a huge success in 1982 and three, and it ran for several years. My mother saw it, came home, and said, "I just saw this unbelievable play with this incredible actor, who's also the playwright." And on my way out, I bought tickets to take you. And I said, what's it about? And she said, homosexuality. I had not told her I was gay. And she took me to see Harvey Firestein uh, in Torch Song. The character Arnold was the first gay man I ever came in contact with. And at the end of the play, he has a fight with his mother. And the mother said, if I had known you were going to be gay, I wouldn't have had you. And after the show, my mother took me to dinner and said, you know, if you ever came home and said you were gay, I would not react like the mother in that play. She used theater as a crystal ball to show me a life that could be possible. She knew no gay people. Nobody was talking to my Long Island mother about gay people then. She had no gay co-workers, no gay friends. It was her own humanity that had her take me to show me what my life could be. And I didn't come out that night, but I knew I was safe because of that um, gesture. You also say because of your upbringing, because your parents didn't teach you uh, right. to to hate, to belittle, to look down on Anybody. on people, on anyone, that you, when you did leave home, it was a shock. I know. Well, so I had I had always thought being gay was lucky. From when the third grade, I felt lucky to be gay. Partly, it's because my parents n never said a negative word about any group of people. So I had no negativity attached to it. And they have always valued my feelings and my thoughts. And I've always felt worthy because they made me feel that way. So when I was different than everybody else, I was so happy because I grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. We went to public school. Everybody was Jewish. We went to Hebrew school after. Then Little League, everybody was the same. And I had a secret that made me special. I couldn't read. I had trouble reading. I was terrible at math. But I liked boys. And that <laughs> made me feel so much better than everybody. And then uh, it wasn't until the fourth grade that the uh, my gym teacher had heard I joined chorus. And I was the only boy who uh, joined chorus. And he said to all the other kids in the gym class, jump on the faggot. And all the boys piled on. And that was my first sense that, oh, other people think there's something wrong with this. Let's fast forward, because you mentioned Harvey Firestein. You, you were the producer yes. recently of, well, the within, of the revival of Torch Song. Yes. Harvey is one of your closest <laughs> friends. Did you think when you were sitting in that theater with your mother watching Harvey Firestein, that a few decades later, you would be working with him, that you would be doing the revival, that you would have the life that you have now. Well, I, I did, sitting in that theater, I did think I could have the life I wanted, which is to be a parent and to be in a relationship, because that's what Torch Song is about. And this play was set in 1979, and Harvey's character Arnold was demanding the life he wanted, and it mirrored what I wanted. But, uh, you know, it's extraordinary that I um, 
became friends with Harvey. I've worked with Harvey for 36 years, and we are the best of friends. But I will say what is important lesson from that is that gay actors have to play gay parts in movies and in TV and theater because what seeing Harvey on stage was miraculous to me, but following what he said off stage, you know, and this is before Instagram, but I w read about him in the newspaper. I watched his now famous interview with Barbara Walters on 2020. It's on YouTube. It, it, everybody should watch it. In 1983, he said to Barbara Walters, I think everyone's gay unless I'm told otherwise. My gay self-esteem was just in its infancy. That was a staggering paradigm shift for me. So watching him off stage was even more impactful to my life than it was on. And I think that's why we need to have uh, LGBTQ people play themselves so that young people could follow them off camera and see the life that could be possible for them. Um, can I ask a favor? Sure. Can we talk politics? Oh, I'd love it. Oh, good. Um, I mean, it's a little daunting to, with you to talk here and oh, in this building. Oh, please, please. So um, you're a big supporter. You and Jordan are big supporters of Mayor Pete. Yes. Talk about the important, given what you just said about you know Harvey and the importance of gay actors playing gay parts so that people can see their life outside of, of the theater and just living their full selves. Talk about the importance of Mayor Pete in this regard, in this time that we're in. Right. So think about all the conversations that are going on about him now in classrooms, in homes, and all these young people who may not understand all their feelings, who may not have told anybody about their feelings, but here is this gay man who is a top-tier contender for the presidency, who is traveling around the country campaigning with his husband. That is life-saving for young people to see that there is possibility for them in this world. And uh, there is no way to be cavalier about his candidacy. It is gives so much hope to our community and so much um, it's a flare of direction for parents who have young LGBTQ parents uh, kids who can say look look what is possible and um, I just find it extraordinary one of the things I find extraordinary and this happened during two, in 2008 when Barack Obama was running for president um, the the First African-American to run for president who had a serious shot, not to take anything away from Shirley Chisholm or, or, Jesse, Jesse, or Jesse Jackson. Right. Or, who I voted for. Oh, well, I, that's not, that is not surprising. Um, but in that time, there were people who were – black people were having active conversations about whether Barack Obama was black, black enough. enough. Yeah, I, I knew where this was going. And right now, the gay community seems to be – in this swirl of craziness talking about whether oh, Mayor Pete is gay enough or even if he's gay. Right. So, uh, I mean, whether he's gay, I think, is absurd. Uh, the Whether he's gay enough, I find deeply disturbing. First of all, definitionally, he's gay. He's married to a man. He served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. That's gay. But 
what I think people are forgetting is that our, our community does not have a litmus test for entry. You could be my son, 15, and say you're gay and you are uh, part of our community. You could be the children who are standing up at their auditoriums and uh, disclosing their gender identity. You can be that young man who was the valedictorian speaker at Brigham Young who came out during his speech. That's extraordinary. A 31-year-old man who lives in the closet for fear that the life he wants for himself is not possible, who has shame about what he feels about himself, that is as legitimate an LGBTQ experience as any other. And we cannot start to have think there's primacy of one gay experience. We, ha we have no test to be, you could be self-hating, you could be, in, you're in our community. You could be in the closet, you're in our community. You can be pr pride, prideful and be in our community. All are welcome and we have no test. And that's what disturbs me so deeply about this conversation. And so then if you were confronted by people who are insisting upon this test, what would you, what would you say to them? Well, you know, I, I think if, if they want that test, they're gonna, they, are, they are basically losing the soul of what makes our community so special because we do not have judgment about the kind of gay person that is the right kind. That it, there is no ideal of the right kind of gay person. And all of these widening definitions, all these new words that young people are using are extraordinary. But we need to make sure our community remains cohesive and we cannot start to parse out who doesn't seem like the right part of our community. I think a lot about parenting is a covenant, right? You send your child out into the world and when you're not with them, somebody else has to take care of them for you, whether it's in the playground, at school, at houses of worship. And with our LGBTQ youth, that covenant is broken. It can be broken by parents themselves, it's broken by the government, it's broken by our organized religions, and it's broken by our education system. And what our community has to do as elders is we have to take our LGBTQ youth in. We have to form community around them. We have to lift them up, help them find their gifts, and unleash their potential. We re we put that covenant back on. We are the ones who reinstore the covenant. So that is a deeply important responsibility as a gay person. So we cannot start saying you don't belong. You're not gay enough. You're not the right kind of gay. We have to be restoring the covenant for every LGBTQ person in this country. I mean, I, I find the, the, that entire conversation to be um, you you say troubling. I say it's offensive. It um, you know, I've had many times people saying to me, "I'm not black enough," or "Do you know you're black?" It's like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm black, and I'm reminded every time. Right. And so for me, I maybe I've just become an old bitter queen <laughs> at this age, <laughs> but, but I have no patience. But I have no the, patience for for question. that point of view. Would would uh, LGBTQ hate groups consider Pete gay enough to uh, discriminate against? Yes. Yep. Would our adversaries consider him gay enough? Yes. Could he be fired in all those states? Yes. Can he give blood? No. 
Does he have to be careful where he's holding Chastin's hand? Yes. So he is definitionally gay because everything that's stacked up against us is stacked up against him too. In the book you give um, Jackson, your son, lots of tips and pieces of advice. And as we close out the conversation, what are some of the the, the tips that you give him that we haven't we haven't touched on? One, you said to be like be active, yes. be politically active. You have to be active. Uh, you have to get LGBTQ people should get their LGBTQ news from LGBTQ journalists uh, because uh, not all our news is always out there and that also our point of view coming from our point of view is very important. The other tips I give him is the way to be a feel good about yourself as a gay person in this world is to learn our history, not as uh, homework, not as eat your spinach. But as a way of, if you learn about who the extraordinary gay people who were in history, you will feel less alone. Learn about our culture, our writers, our artists, because they will help you understand that otherness is a superpower. They will show you how to use your otherness as a positive force in your life. And um, embrace your gayness. Make it central to your life invest in it, rely on it, have faith in it. And uh, if you do that, you will have a incredible journey. Richie Jackson, author of Gay Like Me, A Father Writes to His Son, also Broadway producer of Torch Song, The Revival, and, didn't mention this, television executive producer, Nurse Jackie and Short Bus. Thank you so much for being Thank on the Thank you for podcast. having me. It was so fun. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 